Um, this semester in large group, we're talking about the minor prophets. We're discussing them. And we're, the minor prophets, for those of you who don't know, are 12 small books at the end of the Old Testament, the first kind of two-thirds of the Bible. Um, they're called minor because they're short, not because they're not important. Um, we're studying one minor prophet a week, and each week we're, we're looking at the big picture of the minor prophet, what the book's about, and then we're studying the details of the minor prophet and looking at a particular passage as we walk through it. Um, I'm condensed this a lot, but basically the reason we're studying the minor prophets is I think they're life-challenging, and I think they're really graphic. And I think that's why we're calling our series a title I stole from someone who stole it from someone else. It's called Postcards from the Edge. Postcards from the Edge. Um, and really what we're getting at is these books are sometimes feel out there and confrontational, but I think as we study them, we've learned, and we will learn tonight, that they're actually thoughtful books about um, of God's words for us, his people. Okay? Um, and again, whether you're convinced or unconvinced about that. Okay, so let's talk about what we've got, where we've gone so far. This is like the Pat Sid on the back session because I'm plowing through minor prophets. Um, seminary professors are weeping tears of joy because um, this is what we're doing. So we've gone kind of historically in an order. We looked at Amos, we looked at Jonah, we've looked at Hosea, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Obadiah, and Joel. And this week we're looking at the third to last prophet, Haggai. Haggai. Um, if you knew like 50% of those names, you're in. Okay? If you didn't know 50% of those, you're still in. Okay. Uh, let me give you some historical background about what um, Haggai, where he is and what he's talking about, talking about. He spoke these prophecies, and this is the most exact date we have for any of the books, in 520 B.C. Over the course of six months, he spoke these short prophecies that comprise two chapters of the scripture. Um, but 520 B.C. is not that helpful for us if we're not ancient history buffs. So let me give you a little bit of a, a context, a little bit of a historical background to, to place that in. Okay. 586 B.C. I mean, can I say this thing these dates 100,000 times? What happened in 586 B.C.? Yes. Um... Jerusalem was conquered by Babylon, right? And the temple of God fell, and the people of Jerusalem, the Israelites, were, were put into exile. They were taken in chains to Babylon, right? And there they stayed in exile until another important date, 539 BC. That's when Babylon, that empire, got conquered by Persia. Okay? So, those of you who are Daniel scholars, that's in the Persian Empire period. So three years later, 536 B.C., remember B.C. counts backwards, it counts down. We have Cyrus, and Cyrus is a great Persian empire, the first emperor, the first one, and he declares an edict, and his edict is, hey, everybody, you're free to go home. You know, I guess you don't have to go home, go home but you can't stay here. And so he pushes the people out of Babylon, he takes them and puts the Jews back in their land, back in Jerusalem, and, but the number dwindles back to 50,000 people in Jerusalem. So it's a very small uh, shade of glory of what was. And they're sent back to rebuild their homes and rebuild their temples. Okay, so what does this all mean? What this means is that Haggai spoke to these people 16 years after they were sent home, and they're still small, and they're still poor, 
and they're still extremely discouraged. So a lot of what we're going to read tonight is about a, is a prophecy of encouragement, something that talks to people who are a third world developing nation. This is not America, okay? This is a different nation. Okay. Um, so that's the historical background. You might be asking, what's the book about? So we've been kind of going through what these prophets are majoring in, uh, what their themes are. And so we've talked about things like injustice, grace, redemption, the kingdom of God, uh, that God is warrior king, God's joy, faith, humility, and repentance. And this week, the theme, I think, the main theme of Haggai is God's glory. So we're talking about God's glory. One of these, one of these phrases that's thrown around like nobody's business in the church. Uh, what does this mean? Um, where do we find it? What does it look like? That's all what Haggai's going to address for us tonight. And he's going to give us a real, honest, and helpful look at God's glory. Okay. So we're going to study a passage of Haggai, uh, a key place where God's glory is described in the various ways that it works, and then it also changes us. So, um, if we believe in it. So if you could turn your Bibles, chapter 2, that's all introduction to the scripture. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 is what we're going to look at. Your blue sheet. If you're thumbing through your Bible, ready for this? This is my, one of my favorite places in the Bible. After Zephaniah, before Zechariah. Haggai, right there. Separating the Z's. That's really, really clutch of Haggai. Um, <laughs> if you, another easy way to find it, hit the, hit the book of Psalms. It's pretty big in the Bible. Take a right and just keep going until you hit Matthew and you've gone too far. Okay. So why don't you stand for the reading of Scripture? Uh, this is God's words. This is uh, Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Which, by the way, just means the Lord of armies. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory of this house, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place that is the temple, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Okay? Friends, these are the words of God, and they are more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they are sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, I ask that you would make this cavernous room a little bit more uh, close together, that you would focus our attention on your scriptures, uh, that you'd help us to sit under them and not stand over them, help us to give us charity, uh, give us this ability to trust that they may be true before we doubt them and shake our fists at them. 
I pray, Father, that you would be working in each of our lives, that you would take all of the things that happened today, this week, this month, maybe even this semester, and you would um, shine your glory upon them. That we would hear the words that we need to hear, that we can take out of here, and that we can rest in the rest of the week. Father, I just ask that you would be that merciful to us, that gracious to us, uh, things we don't deserve, but things that you do promise, and we plead those promises in Jesus' name, who's the yes and amen of every promise you ever made. In his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks. Okay, you all should know something a little bit about me. Maybe this is a confessional. My entire life, I've just wanted to be older. Isn't that weird? My entire life, I've just wanted to be older. Okay? I remember when I was in kindergarten, and I couldn't wait to get older and start reading. And then a year later, I got into first grade, and we got all these reading workbooks, and I couldn't, get, I couldn't wait to get older and stop reading the reading workbooks. Okay? When I was seven years old, this is a more concrete story, I was sitting with my friend Ross on, the, on his front steps, and we were eating a bagged lunch, and we were drinking soda, or, in fact, I wasn't drinking it because I couldn't open the pop lid, like the little can lid that pops open, the tab, and I had this sort of dilemma, like, should I get embarrassed and ask Ross for his help, or should I instead go ask a parent and be courageous? Well, instead, I kind of plucked away at the top tab thing until it broke off, and then I had to run and get a parent and a pair of scissors. Anyway, the point is, I longed to be older and stronger so that I could, so I could actually open up Pepsi cans for myself and all the little children that needed me. I had a dream. Um, in high school, I couldn't wait to get older and go to college. In college, I couldn't wait to get older and get a job. When I got a real job, I couldn't wait to get older so I could go back to school. When I went back to school in graduate school, I couldn't wait to get another real job. In other words, you're getting the trend of my life. I always thought some future time would be better than the present, and perhaps still do. Usually I'm banking on something being better than the present. I'm banking on big things in the future, or I'm getting misty and sentimental about things in the past. This is just my personality, and this is why my interns call me Eeyore. Okay? (laughs) Truth's out. Okay. Now I have moments of honesty, and I realize that the future's not going to be all that much better. And I have moments of honesty where I realize that the past wasn't all that heroic and kind, after all. But the reason I'm constantly looking to the future, or to the past, or to both, is because I'm disappointed. Okay? I'm deeply disappointed at a level I don't like to admit that the present isn't what I hoped it would be. The present isn't holding to my expectations for me and for my friends and for my life. These things are not being met at some level. And here's my guess. I'm not the only one, if we all had an honest moment, who feels this way about the present, who feels disappointment. And let me give you some symptoms to maybe look at. Maybe you're pushing off the present, looking for a future payoff. You're thinking, when I get a real job, then I won't feel this way. Or maybe you're romanticizing the past. 
look, I wish I had mandatory nap time. I wish people gave me juice boxes for a living. This stinks. Okay? Or maybe you're looking firmly at the present and you're asking yourself a really, really good question. Is this it? Is this it? Is this all we've got? Now, what's beautiful about the Bible and all of its honesty and all of its truth is it's exactly where this passage is going. It's going there, into this disappointment. There, the people of God, the ancient church, are looking firmly at their present. They're literally standing in the middle of a half-built temple. They're looking around and they're saying, Is this it? Is this it? But get this, they're not just cynical about their lives. They're not just cynical about their jobs, which stink. They don't have any money. And they're not just cynical about their relationships. Look, they lost a lot of people. There's only 50,000 of them. But, and they're not just wishing that they could open the tops of Pepsi cans for other people. These people at this moment in the Bible are much more real and much more honest than many of us ever get. They're asking, is this it? about their spiritual lives. They're saying, is this it? And then they're, they're thinking about, they're looking around the temple, they're saying, this is the object of my faith. This is where God promises to dwell. This is where he promises to show up. They're looking around and they're saying, this kind of sucks. This kind of sucks. So Haggai is asking us, through this passage to get really real and really honest for a second with ourselves tonight and to own deep down inside the disappointment with our lives. The ways we may very well be oftentimes disappointed with our spiritual lives, with God, with Jesus. But in the middle of this soul searching, Haggai also asks us to redirect our gazes towards God. He asks us, are you sure, are you absolutely positive you're actually looking for God's glory and not looking for your own glory? Here's another question. Are you sure you and I even know what we're looking for? In other words, do you and I know what God's glory looks like in our everyday lives? We all know the friend who teleported in a spiritual experience to Egypt and had a vision about the whole population of Cairo. But that's not an everyday life experience. So what does it look like in our everyday lives? By the way, we all don't know that person. That was incredibly over the top. Okay, just so everyone could just breathe a sigh of relief. Maybe my friends aren't holy. Um, anyway, okay. So these kind of questions are still booming. The book of Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, challenge us with a simple truth. It's very simple. God is present and he's at work. His glory is present and it's at work. Therefore, by faith, we work hard and expect God to show up. So here's the simple truth of the passage. God's glory is present and it's at work. And we, by faith, work hard and expect God and his glory to show up. So our passage, God through Haggai explains how God's glory is present and working and what it looks like to work hard and to expect God to show up in his glory. And he does this in three stages, and we're going to look at those three in turn. First, verses 1 through 3, we see God through Haggai asks us to get real 
about our disappointment, to get real about our discouragement. He describes our present scene and asks us how we really feel about it. Second, in verse 4, Haggai encourages us to work hard. He tells us what to do, what God wants us to do in the middle of our discouragement. Then verses 4 through 9, there's a little bit of overlap, I know, we'll live. Haggai assures us that God's glory is at work. He promises us that God is with us and he's for us in the present and the future. Let me put that all much more simply. Okay, that's a lot. First, verses 1 through 3 tell us about the present situation. So, present situation. Verses, verse 4 tells us what to do in the present situation. What to do. And then verses 4 through 9 tell us why we do this work in the present situation. You can just put why for verses 4 through 9. Okay? Let's begin with the beginning, verses 1 through 3, and our God's description of our situation. Ready? Verse 1 begins our passage with a very precise state. In our own calendar, October 17th. That's what we're talking about. That's the whole verse, that's all that stuff about, like the month of this and the day of that, October 17th. Okay? It was on the fall day 2,500 years ago, roughly, that God spoke, verses 3 through 9. That's what it's saying in verse 1. But why is that significant? The exact date that he's specifying is three and a half weeks after the people of God began to rebuild the temple again. Okay? So think about it. Remember, the Babylonians have destroyed the temple. They've gone to exile. They've come back. They started when they first got there. Then they're like, my house is disaster. I'm sleeping in plaster. Help me. And so they go and work on their house for a while. And then Haggai in chapter 1 comes and says, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Easy. Stop staining your deck for a second and take care of God's house. Okay? Let's rebuild this structure for God to dwell here again. And surprisingly, God's people are like, Yes, that sounds like a great idea. Let's go for it. Which is very unusual in the Bible because the Bible is people like us and we kick and scream against everything God says most of the time. But anyway, so here's what he says. He says, Stop working on your home. Start working at God's home. They turn from their backyard decks and their barbecues, and they move into building the temple back to where it should be. Okay. But just three and a half weeks later, after that beautiful move, there's a lot of discouragement, especially among the older folks. Not because they're old. They they weren't even close to finishing the temple, right? They looked around and they said, this is going to take forever. But that's not the real reason they were discouraged. They looked around this temple and they said, this place is a piece of junk compared to the first temple. This place is a piece of junk compared to the first temple. In fact, Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 12, another book of the Bible, says that even when later when the temple was actually finished, the older people looked around the temple and started to weep loudly. Like this place doesn't even compare to the previous temple. It's a complete disappointment. Let me try to put it as many sort of ways as I can. The second temple of God, the one that the Jewish refugees for Babylon are building, this temple in Haggai chapter 2 is a smaller, poorer imitation of the first temple. The first temple was cedar-filled and full of gold and silver. This temple is the equivalent of a cardboard box made of toilet paper rolls and toothpaste. That's kind of what's going on here. Okay? 
God knows that the people are frustrated and they're disappointed with his temple, and he makes them get real by asking a very hard series of questions. It's in verse 3. Read that with me. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it nothing in your eyes? In other words, God's telling them, let's be honest. Let's get real. Most of you think that the temple you're breaking your back to build is worthless. It doesn't compare even remotely to the previous temple in glory. That temple is something. This temple is nothing. And God knows they feel like they're building in vain and they want to give up. And God is asking them to be real honest about their growing cynicism. But that cynicism isn't just an ancient problem, right? It's not just what the Israelites were wrestling with in their own issues, right? It's our problem as well. Haggai is asking us as much as them to get honest about the present. Honest about our hearts for a second. Remember, the temple of God in Israel was the physical address of God. Okay? Look, this is really significant. I don't know how to put this. God is a spiritual being. He's infinite in in power, splendor, being, changeless and matchless in worth and justice and holiness, goodness and truth. There's a trillion different adjectives I could use. But he chooses to rest his spiritual feet in this building. He dangles his spiritual feet from heaven. And the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the Holy of Holies is where it's basically like a giant footrest. Honestly. Okay? You can read it in the, in the middle of Exodus, First Kings, all sorts of places in the Old Testament. Okay? Look, if, if Google Maps and the phone book had existed back in the day, if you looked under the name Lord God, the physical address you would have gotten was the temple. Okay? That's what you would have gotten. This is a big deal. Okay? So this disappointment is not just like a building project's going terrible. I don't know what happened with the plaster. I don't understand the drywall going on here. This is a mess. No, that's not what they're disappointed about. They're frustrated with God. They're frustrated with God by association. They were thinking, is this it? My spiritual life sucks. Maybe this God isn't that great. I want the God of the past with like the cool ruby-covered stones. What is this God? I've got toothpaste and toilet paper rolls. This stinks. Can anybody relate to that feeling? Maybe just a little bit. Can we go there? Can we be that honest? Is this going to destroy us? If you're a Christian, don't don't you sometimes wish you could go back in time? Right? To that moment in youth group when you were on fire for Jesus? To that missions trip where you felt like God was speaking to you and you were speaking he was speaking through you to all these native peoples? Okay? <laughs> to those few weeks after you became a Christian where people just had to tell you to shut up about Jesus because you just talked about him nonstop? Maybe you want to go back there. Or if you're not sure you're a Christian, I bet you sometimes feel this about the present. Either way. Just ask yourself a dangerous question. Are you really happy? Are you really happy? And what can make you happy? Do we know those answers? Look, Christian or not, maybe you've been living into this college stereotype. Maybe you've been thinking that college is really like Animal House. That's really what it's all about. It's a 1960s movie, but it still holds weight somehow. Okay, And all of a sudden, but as you're sort of getting into this lifestyle, you're starting to realize it's growing a little bit stale and a little bit boring, right? All of a sudden, the parties don't seem fun anymore. They just seem like a bunch of drama and catfights. 
All of a sudden, the drinking doesn't, you have to drink more and more and more to even have a good time. Look, I love the way that the rock band, The Strokes, which is cool maybe 10 years ago, had a song called Is This It? Which I stole the title from. Okay? Like, I just want you to picture this guy's life. This, name, this guy's name is Julian Casablancas. His last name has Casablanca in it, okay? Obviously, he's cool to many people in the hipster scene. So, he grew up, he grew up in New York. He's like a, a club legend. Before they released their CD, it's already pre-sailing Billboard Top 20, Okay? They're a legend on the, on the underground circuit. He goes around, he plays at clubs, he picks fights at bars, he sleeps with random women whenever he wants. He is doing all of this just because he can. But he's this moment of beautiful, real honesty in the song, Is This It? He's talking about a one-night stand, and listen to the way he talks about a one-night stand over heavy, heavy distortion. Can't you see I'm trying? I don't even like it. I just lied to get in your apartment. Now I'm staying here just for a while. I can't think because I'm just way too tired. Is this it? Is this it? Is this it? You see, Casablanca is unhappy, and society says he has no reason to be unhappy. He's living the life. He's young. He's rich. He's powerful. But he feels like something's missing. Do you feel like something's missing? Are you growing weary with doing good? Are you growing weary fighting temptation and studying hard? Or pretending to study hard and pretending to fight temptation? Are you, you're living the Christian life, but you feel like something's missing. Is something wrong with you? Is something wrong with me? Three and a half weeks ago, we were pumped to build God's temple. We couldn't wait. We were jumping up and down with the jackhammer. But now, we can barely get up out of bed. And we just can't show up to anything. God is telling you the first step in the middle of all of this mess is incredible, radical honesty. Sometimes life is disappointing. Sometimes even the Christian life feels disappointing. But look with me at this small but very important word at the beginning of verse 4. Yet. Yet. Okay? The word yet, or but now, acknowledges, hey, there is discouragement, but it gives us a plan of action. Don't stop at the discouragement, keep going. And this leads to our second point, what do we do in the face of personal disappointment, of spiritual disappointment? What do we do? Second point. Three times, three different audiences, God says the same thing. Be strong. He talks to the governor, Zerubbabel. Be strong. Talks to the priest. Joshua, be strong. Talks to the people, be strong. Okay? God is pushing us to adopt a very different inner attitude. He's saying, be courageous. In the face of disappointment and discouragement, get up and show up. Get up and show up. But get up and show up to do what? Verse 4 is very clear. He tells us to work. And I love the way he uses work. He doesn't sit there and say, have a good time. He says, work. That's tough. We get up and we show up to work, but what exactly are we working on again? In the passage, ancient Israel is working on rebuilding the temple, right? Rebuilding God's house. But what's that for us? What's our work? What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to be strong about? And this is application times times ten. So, ready? 
the easy parallel can be made between the temple and the church. Right? But that's not because they're both religious buildings. Okay? The reading we heard earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 suggests that the modern day temple of God, the place where God is found, is actually the church. Why? Because Jesus chooses to dwell inside of those people who believe in him. And those people, when they gather together, are what's called the church. Okay? So think about it. The temple is where God decides to dwell. And then God decides to dwell on people. The people gathering together. Ah, that's the temple. The new temple. That's the church. Okay? And the scriptures are clear about that over and over and over again. So working on the temple is, looks more like carpentering. Is that a word? Doing carpentry on the walls and stalls of the church. Right? It starts with us. It starts with us wanting to be better people, to be more like Jesus. It looks at hating what Jesus hates and loving what Jesus loves, working at it. And knowing the difference by studying the scripture. And then chasing away all the bad desires, not letting them nest in our hearts, over and over and over again. Hence the word work. And then our work moves outward towards people. And this looks like intentionally messing up our comfortable, safe, neat lives by loving people recklessly. Where they are and how they are, even in the midst of their petty awkwardness. It looks like loving a church, a particular group of people. Maybe it's, say, Tuesday night like this. Maybe it's especially Sunday morning, right? But loving those folks as they are, not how they should be, Loving them as if God actually dwelled there and we could build up the temple through our words and truth and love. Okay? That's the imagery over and over again in the New Testament. They don't have to shape up to get our love. But have you noticed this yet that Haggai, the Bible's incredible uh, it's antidote to disappointment, is so, so disappointing. It doesn't look fun, it doesn't look exciting, it doesn't look sexy. It's just a long obedience in the same direction. I love that quote. I love that phrase. A long obedience in the same direction. That's a great, great quote. It's from Eugene Peterson, a pastor. And let me give you the full thing. He says it this way. The essential thing in heaven and in earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. This thereby results in a something that's made life worth living. Okay? So the essential thing in heaven and earth is to do a long obedience in the same direction. It's a something that makes life worth living. So strong, courageous work is the antidote to disappointment. A, one, a long, one-direction obedience. Okay? Resisting temptation. Reading the Bible. Going to church. Serving roommates. The Christian life is not scurrying after what's new. Oh, that's a great Christian rock band. That's awesome. It's plodding a pilgrimage. There's nothing wrong with Christian rock bands, but it's a plodding pilgrimage. Okay? I always have to say things like that. Um, understanding this perspective helps us wrestle with the feeling that we're missing out on something. That we're missing out on something past or present while we're rebuilding the temple. But I love this part about the scripture. Verses 4 through 9... God is calling us to a, a long obedience in the same direction, right? Why? Do you realize this is precisely the thing you can't and I can't do? Do you get that? He's asking us to do something that we don't want to do, that we can't do, that we can't be strong. 
We can't be strong in this spiritual way. We can't work in this spiritual way. We don't want to work on a smaller, poorer temple. And frankly, we can't do it, at least in our own strength. And that's the beauty of the scriptures. You see, in ourselves, we are not strong enough. In ourselves, we can never be strong enough, morally strong enough, to do God's work the way he asks us to do it. Gosh, that is such good news. Why? Because we can't just get a smartphone that's better with a better calendar app. We can't just get a blackboard for our bedroom and write down all the daily appointments we have and make long-term plans and missionals for our lives. We can't just roll up our sleeves again and get to God's work. The Bible is not P90X. Do we get this? It's not like, I'm going to get crushing awesome abs. That's not the point of the Bible. The goal is not ripped abs. The Bible is not P90X. The goal of God for us, in our despair, the goal of God in the teeth of a long obedience in the same direction, is that we would see His glory. That we would see His glory. God's glory is the third and final point. It's the why of how we work in the midst of disappointment. Why do we do the work? Because we see God's glory. I love the way that this professor and commentator John McKay says it. Faith has to learn how to act so to overcome difficulties. Faith has to learn to persevere in doing what's right once the excitement of the initial commitment has faded. What he's saying there is faith, we get bored. And we need an object. We need a goal. And we need that goal, according to Scripture, is God's glorious presence. Verses 4 and 5. He's rescued us from Egypt, and now he rescues us from ourselves and our P90X attitudes. God's presence is the key to overcoming despair. In our strength, we can say all we want. We'll always say, I can't, therefore I won't. Do you get that? This is the posture in the spiritual life without Jesus' spirit filling us and moving us. I can't, therefore I won't. But by the power of Jesus' spirit within us, by the crucified and resurrected Lord working inside our very hearts and our very spirits, we can say... I can't, but he can, so I will. I can't, but he can, so I will. Do you see that step? You can't go from I can't to I will. You have to go to he can't. You can't skip it. Okay? We can't skip it. Thankfully, God's presence is full, is just throughout verses 4 and through 9. I could spend a whole sermon on this. I won't. Because, look, we're talking about the temple. Of course, the major part of the temple is going to be God's presence, right? That's exactly what he's going to be majoring on. Um, But according to Haggai, um, God's glory is not just obvious, it's not at all what we expect. So, I think we think we know what God's glory is going to be, and it's totally different. And this is part of our problem. This is where our disappointment lies as well. According to Haggai, the glory of God looks like the treasures from the nations. The treasures of all the nations, verse 7. And peace, verse 9. Look, maybe this dates me a while, a bit, but do you guys remember the, the, the cartoon show DuckTales? Anybody? Yes. Woohoo. Um, um, anyway, verse 7 makes me think of that opening scene of DuckTales every single episode where like Scrooge McDuck opens the vault and he starts surfing on gold coins. 
like the treasures of all the nations are flowing out, right? Like you hit jackpot, it's just like flowing gold coins. Like every day's Vegas in Jesus. Now, like the whole point is in the original Hebrew, verse seven. I don't feel like tre- treasures is the best translation. The most accurate translation of the Hebrew, the original language of Haggai, is desired. It's the desired of all nations, not just the treasures. Okay, and I want you to think about this. This is referring to the people of God, the desired from all nations. Think again of 1 Corinthians 3, how it describes the people of God in the church with precious metals, silver and gold, with treasures. The Bible is consistent in this sense. So God's glory is the way his spirit is making our work, our long obedience in the same direction on the church, shine forth. With a greater glory than Solomon's temple, that first temple, what we're doing when we do good in the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus shines greater than all the gold and all the silver and all the cedar you can amass in one place. That's the point of Haggai. In other words, what we're plotting away at, the church, community, loving people in the name of Jesus, those things are incredibly valuable because each of us when we do those things, and even when we fail to do those things, is incredibly valuable to God. Do we get that? Look, I didn't put my hand to my forehead. Do you get that? Okay. And then in verse 9, God's glory, God's glory is also described as peace. Look, peace is not just some future ceasefire agreement between all the nations that are warring. Okay, that's part of it. But it's a present reminder of how Jesus died to make a way of peace between us and God. Remember, God saves us from God. God, the Son, Jesus, has to save us from God the Father. That's why there's such a thing as a trinity, and that's why it's important. Okay? God is 100% good, and he cannot live with, he cannot relate to those who are not 100% good. And so there has to be a solution. And the solution is that Jesus, who's 100% good in God's eyes, has to die on a cross and give us his 100% goodness for our less than 100% goodness in exchange. When we believe in Jesus, we get his record. He gets our record. He dies for free to give us his goodness and takes on our badness. That's the only way that God can see us with peace in his eyes and his heart. He had to die. And if we believe that Jesus did this for us, we receive God's peace. Now, peace doesn't mean a lot to us. Maybe if you're a Puritan from the 17th century, 18th century, it does a lot. 19th century even. But, I want to put it this way. It means approval. Approval. Approval is what motivates us in disappointment. Approval is what the God of glory is about. I've got to quote C.S. Lewis. I just have to. It's a quota. Okay. Look, God talks, C.S. Lewis ties God's approval to his glory this way. The promise of glory is the promise only possible by the work of Christ, the promise only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us shall actually survive the examination. Some of us shall find approval. Some of us shall please God. To please God to be a real ingredient in divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, 
but delighted in as an artist delights in his art, or a father delights in his son, is what it means to be approved. That's God's glory. What a promise and what an encouragement that is. In the midst of our hard work, in the midst of a semester that's going forever, okay, what does it look like to be faithful in the small things and to know that in heaven, your heavenly Father has promised you peace. And peace looks like this. Him shouting from heaven, my good and faithful servant with whom I am well pleased. You are pleasing to me. You are faithful. You are doing what other people cannot do because Jesus is doing it in you and for you for all time. I am pleased with you because I am pleased with Christ forevermore. Amen. What if that's what we woke up to? What if that's what we went to bed with? What if that's what rang in our ears when we did our homework? What if that was what happened when we suddenly got up the urge to do our roommate's dishes? What if that was what was motivating us? What in the world? That would be amazing for all of us, me included. Let me end with a story. Okay, so as a child, we talked about I always wanted to be older, okay? But I also was like obsessed with 3D glasses, okay? Like before Avatar and like things got high tech and they were plastic, they were paper, Okay, cardboard. And there's like a red lens and a blue lens, right? And you'd put them on and then like the movie would pop open and like things would grab at you. And you'd be like, well, that's scary. But I also had a real like kind of nervous twitch curiosity to take my glasses off in the middle of the movie and to see what was really going on. Like, come on, these are pieces of paper. <laughs> Can't be doing that much. And I would look at the movie screen and when you took the glasses off, the hand crawling coming out at you became just like a bunch of scribbly lines that were really, really blurry, right? You guys have done this before. I'm Trust me. We all cheat, don't we, in terms of that stuff? Okay. So, look. I would, then the rest of the movie, I'd sit there and say, Sid, don't do it. Don't you pull that off again. You're going to ruin the movie for yourself. You're just going to sit there and obsess about how two images make one and the 3D, and you don't understand physics at all, um, especially when you're like eight. Um, anyway. So, look, that, I basically sort of sat there and did that. Now, this story relates to our passage because Haggai leaves us with a challenge that's related to that story. Okay? Here's the question. He's told you what to do. The scripture, you guys kind of know what the scripture says. Maybe some of you don't. Maybe you're learning about that. But, and you're kind of in the middle of disappointment. And the question is, will we look for God's glory? Will we look for God's glory in the theater of dark disappointment? Okay? Will we believe that God's at work here in me and in my relationships and on this campus? Are we going to believe that? Are we going to enter campus with a hard hat on? Believing that God, this is under God's construction. Will we believe that he is present and he is making all things for me and with me? He's working all these things out by his presence. Will we, by faith, keep the 3D glasses of belief on in the darkness of disappointment? Or are we going to take them off? Because without the lenses of looking for God's glory, without the lenses of faith, life just looks badly drawn. Life just looks blurry. And the question becomes, are we willing to look at life and look for God's glory in unusual places? Do we trust that his version of reality is sometimes better than ours? 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for this time together, and I uh, thank you for the words that Haggai has to say to us. Um, maybe it feels cheap to wear 3D glasses and think about that as faith, but I think that, Father, that's an image that I can't get over. How flimsy and papery and seemingly ridiculous <laughs> believing in a God that became man and died, whereas again seems to be sometimes, but how wonderfully it changes the entire world to go from meaninglessness to meaningfulness, to go from chaos and scribbles to excitement. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to sit in that excitement and to sit with our eyes open and our mouths open and to cheer and to work. In your name we pray. Amen.